welcome everyone to the Split Take podcast, which is currently being published by the film Sync, S-Y-N-C. Uh, I would totally forgive you for thinking it's S-I-N-K, which is not much better than, than Sync. Film- or S-Y-N-C-H. Sync? Oh, I was not like a sink, like, you know, you've the, the film sink. We're cooking and now we're cleaning our dishes, our film, metaphorical film dishes in the film sink. All around, uh, not not particularly a great name. Chandler and I have never been happy with it. We're so working uh, on it. FYI, we're working on changing that mm-hmm. uh, at some point. For the diehard fans. For the diehard film, <laughs> film sink sand, stands. Film sink stands. Film, sink film stink sands. <laughs> film stink. Film stink. The film stink. That'll be our new name. You heard it here first, folks. www.filmstank.com. The film mank. The film. Well, film mank. You're just going to get mank. <laughs> We're going to be lost. Full circle. Buried. So under... it's a win win. You either get us or you get to watch mank. <laughs> a true, maybe the only true win win scenario in the world. Well, we're glad to have it. Uh, but yeah, we, we are back here uh, on the, another episode of the, the Split Take podcast. And this week we're going to be talking about A Touch of Zen, a uh, Chinese martial arts film. And we're going to be talking about A Touch of Evil. Actually, no, just Touch of Evil, not A. I keep wanting to put A in front of that because of... Drop the A. Yeah. Yeah. It's anyway. <laughs> so... Uh, before we get to that, I just want to uh, say that if you're watching on uh, YouTube, Spotify, or wherever, just uh, subscribe to the podcast if you find it interesting. I'll remind you again. Also, um, we might end up doing a poll somewhere. Maybe uh, let audience people decide eventually what we one of our non-BFI related films are. But but who knows? I don't know how well that would go out, but uh, at the very least, if you have any recommendations for movies you think we should talk about, uh, let us know in the comments. Always appreciated. Um, That's sort of kind of how we got um, Dragon in. Kind of. Somebody suggested it to me. Eh, well, there you go. Pretty, pretty there good. You go. This Simple week, you were not outside. There was a uh, a bird. In the previous uh, episode, in the background, because you were recording outside. I was, yeah. Yeah. Cheap, 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 cheap. <laughs> so hopefully the, the audio will be a tad bit better. Where am I getting feedback be. from? I'm getting feedback from somewhere. From me or you? No, no, no. It's on my end. Don't worry about it. Oh, is, okay. it is it Messenger being funny? Uh, whatever quit well, you okay shoot so uh, I, I, you can try though you can try mm. uh well i want to say there's more that i had to say oh we technically have a discord i always forget that um i have put it in uh, some of the uh podcast oh, yeah, yeah. episodes uh in the show notes on the website but i figure might as well announce it here if you care to uh actually talk to us i don't know if anyone's out there that's like that but uh there's a discord uh, if you're into that sort of thing i'll put the link in the video description if you're watching on youtube and i'll put it in the show notes for all the gamers out there yeah you can even 
No, you, you can't join us for Minecraft Monday, but you can join us for other stuff if you really want. Well, to. we'll see if we like you. It, yeah, that's an exclusive club right there. Uh, yeah. At number one, you have to like Mank. And that's then we'll, true. That that's is question that is number one on a, a 50 question litmus test. And then we go from there. But that. Smooth sailing, if you like Mank, pretty much, though. Anyway, uh, apparently Chandler's been watching a lot. So what have you been watching lately, Chandler? Honestly, I, you know, I was going to say that I did watch a lot, but uh, since we've recorded these pretty close together, not a lot recently. Because we recorded um, on the 27th of May. That was when we last recorded. And it's only the 2nd of June. So I only have a few. Literally, I literally only have two. <laughs> oh, good, perfect. Let's speed through. Them. I want to. We, we probably want to get to or the meat of the episode anyway. Yes, yes. Well, one of them is that I finally saw Back to the Future. Never seen it before. Saw it in a theater at Harkins. Wow. Tempe Marketplace, oh, and it is very good. Wow. I can understand why theater. people at a movie theater. <laughs> It's one of those uh, big movies that I haven't seen that I feel like I can only see in a theater, you know? Mm. I'd actually say it's it's one of those movies that you don't need to see in a theater, but I'm very happy that you did. Uh, it was great. <laughs> kind of hard to complain about this one. There's no, not it's really just fun. anything. It's, yeah. It's one of those uh, in, in the 80s, just a slew of just good old fun that was coming out. Yeah. Good old fun. I can't really find anything wrong with it. I well do made, miss well filmed, really well fun. Made. Uh, especially that opening scene, just all the clocks. Yeah. Subtle. This this is uh, one of those movies you could point to if you wanted to to put on your your boomer cap and say they don't make them like they used to. I will say that there are some elements that they literally don't do anymore, and one thing that I especially appreciate is just how over the top a lot of these performances are. Pretty much everyone in this movie has got like a, a very vibrant sense of uh, of of comedic timing. Um, Christopher Lloyd is obviously a big one, but for me, the funniest person in this movie was Crispin Glover. Just him both as a teenager and as uh, Marty's dad, I feel like he nails those mannerisms really well. Um, Biff also great, <laughs> kind of just the biggest shithead. Um, I really have nothing to say about it that other people have not said before. It's very good. It is a very airtight script, but I'll be honest, it could have solved this whole thing if Marty just told his mom he was gay. Could have could have solved a lot. You know, cinema sin. I'm uh you know how they're doing like the groundhog day knockoffs? And knockoffs yeah. is a harsh word. It's uh I'm fine with them. I'm fine with that kind of it's thing. It's a subgenre. At this point, mm. I feel like it's its own subgenre. It, it, it will become loop? a subgenre once you do it enough. But like the first couple times you do it, it's a it's a ripoff. And then once you get enough True. of a body of work, it becomes codified into uh, something more than just ripping off. Yeah. You, you, the line between what you're ripping off at, from one thing to what you're. Anyway, I wouldn't mind the back to the future kind of uh narrative being ripped off in a similar way to like palm springs and groundhog day uh but back to the future i feel like would have a uh uh could find some success in like a modern day version and then you go back to a, a different 
like the 90s and it's just uh, 90s fun nostalgia i wouldn't yeah because i mean by the you know the, the the how far the 50s were back in the 80s is how far the 90s are back today could or to the 2000s stuff. or uh could you know the... when we're good old boomers and go uh <laughs> back to the 20 uh 2020s marty mcfly stops 9-11 oh no <laughs> marty mcfly yes. goes back in the future to prevent the catastrophe cat- catastrophic failure of the wendy's empire <laughs> before it disappeared forever just so you're saying fries. that you want a you want not a remake, but a, a re-examination, a, a re-exploration of this concept. Yeah, like exploring going back, like Back to the Future is kind of a nostalgia trip in a way, um, but also not like it's 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 charming. And it's only like from our position now in the future, it is a. Period piece. <laughs> it, is. it was made, obviously. Um, but, but it's also like a high school movie in a way, uh, or going back to your youth, youthful days. And I feel like that's that general concept of like, yeah, going back. It's fun. It's interesting. It doesn't necessarily have to be all about like time travel shenanigans, uh, or it could be, I don't know, but well, some of the time travel jokes are actually pretty funny in this. I wasn't expecting them to be. Especially when Christopher Lloyd asks uh, Marty McFly who the president is, and he says Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Who's your vice president? Jimmy, not Jimmy Stewart. Fuck, what's his name from King of Comedy? Excuse me. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Hey, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Uh, the other noticeable, notable movie that I watched uh, that ironically enough uh which was the main discussion of last week but i did have in the last week mm. uh the opportunity to watch blow up again and the... it's almost like I, I wish we could go back and try that episode again because now i have much more to say about it than uh, i did the, the first time of course blow up being the 1966 michelangelo antonioni film antonioni i also yep. didn't I always forget to mention this. I don't know why. Um, Blow Up, I believe, is on the director's poll of the BFI and not the critic's poll. Weird. Uh, continue. Your your new thoughts while I, I double check well, that. Well, new claim. thoughts, yeah. So I'm definitely going to chalk up the first time to... Well, I'm not going to completely chalk up the first time to me seeing it as just not being the right mindset because I do feel like it's a movie that you kind of have to see twice. I think you said that last week. Because once you understand what the entire story is, where it goes, what it t- tackles. It becomes a lot easier to to rewatch it and examine what it is they're trying to say and how they do it. You um, could theoretically enjoy it on a first watch, but I think the the real power and the accomplishment of the film is being able to go back and find more and look at it from different perspectives. Yeah. And so I we you know there's a few different things that we uh, talked about last week in the episode where um it sort of started to make things click with me in my head. Um and usually when I have something like this where I'm like I got to watch it again, I put it off for a long time. But this is one of those where like the, the amount I was thinking about it was way more than usually sparks a second watch. So I had some time Sunday night decided to watch it at like 7 o'clock p.m. or whatever. Um, and yeah, I was much more 
much more appreciative of it this time around. Uh, basically, you know, the whole movie, again, like we said, is about this whole idea of uh, the, the real versus the unreal um, and how consumerism and this this desire to uh, basically uh, consume everything around you sort of factors into that. Um, I basically got the, the idea this time around that the main character whose name is listed as Thomas, but I don't think they ever say his name. They don't know. Yeah, was just he was sort of enveloped in this culture to where he's just numb to the joys of consumption, but he still has that that uh, that urge to consume. So that's why mm-hmm. he's taking pictures. He's buying shit. He's, you know, um, uh, just fucking everyone. <laughs> um, but you can tell he doesn't really enjoy it uh, because I think a lot of it is that it's not real. The, the, the high that you feel from drugs aren't real. Um, the the. The sex isn't like real sex because even brings up the fact that, you know, he doesn't have kids. So you can argue that the sex was not real if it does not reproduce. I know that's a very uh, uh, broad term or broad uh, um, define definition of what sex is. But uh, a huge part of it to me was that he is a guy who his whole living is photography. It's posing models, creating situations, capturing that manufactured reality and selling it. To the point where he has no like real reality of his own. So when he takes these pictures in the park and he finds out that these pictures are real, they capture a real murder, something he went and saw and saw was for real. It becomes this like. Unobtainable kind of thing to him, it, not obtain, unobtainable, it becomes something that is much more real and tangible than everything else around him. It's something that he can consume and still feel something towards. Um, but then when he loses. Um, those pictures and the that tangible reality is proven to be just as like uh, temporary as all these unreal things that sort of blurs the line between reality and the unreal and making the claim basically that it doesn't matter because everything is temporary and that's when he disappears i don't know i got a lot more out of it this time a lot more to read into i do find it very interesting and just on a filmmaking level um, I was bored to tears the first time around when he was just looking at just that 11 minute sequence where he's just looking at the pictures. This time I thought it was amazing. Great. Good. Because I mean, it's that's, really simple. That's the correct like the- <laughs> uh, response to that sequence. But hey, who am I to tell you? Well, yes. What to- um, because it's not as flashy as blowout. You know, where you, you see all these these uh, these sexy close ups of all the analog technology. Uh, the nice lighting, the crazy camera movements, the diopters. It's just very simple. It's just him and a bunch of like shot reverse shots of him looking at the stuff, fiddling about with this big clunky 60s photography thing that I have no fucking clue how it works. Uh, dark rooms, which I've always appreciated that aesthetic of the dark room. Yeah, it's just oof. it's uh, it's probably good to mention. I mean, I think the the design of the whole film and particularly the the photography studio is really interesting. And it's kind of like this this hectic place where like it everything's like on top of each other in the photography studio where you're like you can't really get an idea of like okay there's his his dark room is like he has to cross like a, a yeah catwalk thing into a, like what's going on there and the funny thing is is that's an actual photography studio in London that Antonioni rented out for the purposes of the film and. Antonioni is is very known for being very controlling of his set design. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, obviously, with someone whose films are are analyzed for their meaning. 
but like a lot of that, a lot of the physical geography of that space is just an actual working uh, photography studio. And that's pretty cool. The other interesting thing that uh, Antonioni does is in the grass, the park sequence, when he takes the photos, uh, he painted the grass greener because he wanted it greener and he added the fence in. That was not part of the park. Okay. Uh, but s- stuff like that, he's like very granular about like, okay, well, the grass isn't green enough and I need it to be greener. And somehow that's important. Well, it's funny because um, I was, I looked in, I bought the Criterion. That's how oh. confident I was. Wonderful. And it's a beautiful Criterion. It is. It's a very nice packaging. I read through the booklet. I watched all the special features. A lot of, a lot of um, special features too. A lot. So Good many. junky booklet like, too. Yeah. Um, well, the only thing I didn't look at in the booklet was the short story it was based on, because I just didn't give a shit. I just, whatever. I mean, I, I, I appreciate that they added that. I just don't care. Um, but uh, one comparison that I saw um, that a lot of people made to this movie was that, um, especially now with our, our modern uh, uh, society's like fascination with this concept, but a lot of these scenes or these set the designs kind of feel like liminal spaces. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Oh, yeah. 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 And that park especially felt like one to me. Because mm-hmm. that fence just feels odd, especially when they explore it, explore it later when they're like looking at the pictures, the way that that hand just sort of peeks out from the ether. <laughs> that in particular, I mean, the photo, the 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 photo studio is also very interestingly designed, but there's something about the park that I just find fascinating. Um, and then they said something about like in the special features that the park that was in the movie was like some sort of, you know, ancient civilization burial type thing. And at that, I don't give a shit about that, though, because that kind of stuff you can't really tell. It's like nice to know, <laughs> but I don't get the sense of that from watching sure. it. But there's very interesting locations, especially in the beginning. Yeah. And that, um bank yeah Mm. the other thing i would recommend for people watching antonioni's films in general and then blow up specifically is there's a lot of um like pairs or doublings or like juxtapositioning and uh, another way to maybe approach some things in the film is like what how are they related to other things of like the propeller it's interesting, like a review that Chandler liked on Letterboxd, all the review is, is why the hell did he want that propeller? And, <laughs> you know, if you think about a propeller, it is part of an airplane, but it is, it's not like it's, it's detached from the hole, which kind of relates back to the, the whole sequence of him separating the images, the parts of the uh, park f- uh, photography section and like cutting out and blowing up specific parts and like removing parts from the whole image and something to think about. Like there, there's no, like I, I have no meaning behind that other than there are, are things that are kind of rhyming in there that he's, yeah, you can relate the propeller back to that. And I'm sure you can relate it. You can relate it back to consumerism and just the desire to there's, want things regardless yeah. of context. There's, there's different layers. Fuck. Well, another one is uh, the obsession with the image. Not necessarily feeling, but image. And one that I noticed was when uh, the woman whose picture is being taken goes back to the studio and he like plays that jazz for her. And she starts like dancing in a very like natural kind of way. And then he's just basically he's like posing or saying, no, listen to it like this. Look like this when you're listening to it. Just a lot of layers. And you know what? I'll even go as far as to say 
I, I do like this more than Blowout. <laughs> really? I'd go that far. I really, really? would. I, I didn't think it would uh, come to that. I mean, it's it's one thing to like say this is this might be like a better constructed film, and you still yeah. prefer one over the other. But to say that you like it better, that's wow. Yeah, big big uh, big jump between two viewers. Big if true. And it, <laughs> not saying I don't. I still think Blowout's a masterpiece. Of course, it's, and it's, it is fun. See. I liked it. Yeah, but yeah, that's all I got. Because again, okay. it's only been a few days since we last recorded. Yeah. So I have one in particular that I want you to talk about, but we'll wait. Well, to of that, course, I guess. Of course. Yeah. Uh, I too only really have two. Would you look at that? Uh, the first one I'm going to talk about is The Lady Eve from 1941. Oh, yeah. Directed by Preston Sturges. This actually got a Criterion release last year, I think. Or, or maybe mm. it, was, it was a Blu-ray upgrade, I think. Uh, don't quote me on any of that. That's my is this bad a, a prequel to All About Eve? Uh, you know, <laughs> title wise, it, it's kind of similar, but no, not really. It it stars Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda, people who you may be familiar with. Uh, I've heard of and them. it's it's 1941. It is a fun romantic film. Uh, I've heard people describe it as a comedy. I didn't really find it funny. Uh, I found it at least engaging and it is it kind of fun characters. And it is one of the more memorable, interesting performances I've seen from Barbara Stanwyck as an actress. And I couldn't even tell you another movie she's been in. Uh, Double like Indemnity. Uh, Never seen it. Babyface, Stella Dallas, The 40 Guns, Meet John Doe, A Night to remember the furies a couple literally uh, none of those oh well a couple of those are in the uh, criterion collection so oh uh, the 1953 titanic <laughs> that hit do you you do know double indemnity though yeah, yeah. with humphrey yeah, bogart yeah. yeah yeah no billy wilder fred mcmurray i was thinking of the big sleep yeah 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 i do know that yes Double Indemnity is, of course, very famous in uh, for in my circle of of friends, film friends, because it is a film that a lot of people tend to like. And I. I don't think it's good. I think it's Billy, the worst Billy Wilder film I've seen, and that's a hot take coming from me. I've seen it. How many have you seen? Uh, A few. It's definitely not the worst Billy Wilder film, but it's the one that annoys me the most. Um, Mm. And I uh, feel free if you if you are a huge double indemnity fan, I will uh, personally invite you onto the show for you to uh, defend the film. <laughs> I was actually thinking of is it on the BFI a, list? No, it's not. Thank goodness. They they got that right as much, I think. Eh, I don't know. These days, I haven't seen the list in a while. Um, speaking of which, I was actually thinking of putting uh, like a call on the Criterion subreddit or something. Of like if you are if you like podcasting and you want to defend like put a list of the movies we've said we hate these movies come oh, and tell okay. us why they're good like greed or uh let's, let's funny. find a uh, defender of the imitation of life i would i was I'm just about to say genuinely curious i was uh oh my god as i as i looked on letterbox to see what it was uh somebody else i know blow up um uh yeah there's there's a film critic i very much respect 
um, who I saw on Twitter the other day, I guess some, he was replying to some sort of question, like, what was your favorite first watch of the year or something like that? Mm-hmm. And it's a film critic I very much respect. And he his response was imitation of life. So maybe we'll ask him. I because let me say this, this is off topic, but yeah, no, yeah, no, sorry, no. Uh, let me get back on topic. Apologies <laughs> for that. Um, the Lady Eve, yeah, it's it's pretty good. I've heard really great things about it. It didn't wow me or anything. It was just kind of like a fun romantic film, uh, and very much of the era that it was made in. And I've never been the biggest fan of Preston Sturges as a director. Um, I haven't seen that many by him, to be fair, and I'll keep... I love obviously. that name. That's all I can say. Yeah, good name. I'll keep watching. He did Sullivan's Travels, which I blind bought the Criterion. It's somewhere on that shelf. Weird. And Jack Black. Mo- that's Gulliver. <laughs> that's Gulliver. Uh, but I bought the Criterion because it has a commentary with like Michael Mc. A bunch of people, anyway. Noah Baumbach, I think. Mm. Who knows? It's an odd, like, there's like five people on the commentary, and they're all like famous actors and directors in their own right. Weird. And there's not really much. Uh... Anyway, yeah, Preston Sturges no, have not been wowed by a, a film of his. I, I hear people like him. I think he's a, an interesting director. I think he's like what you would think of as like just like a classic old 40s Hollywood director just kind of doing his thing and um, mm. shooting in that classic style and kind of exemplifying that not doing anything too spectacular, but not doing anything poorly either. Like I've never been disappointed by one of his films. Just, just seems kind of a middle of the road kind of director. And that's the lady Eve. Um, I, I recommend it. I guess if you like old romantic films could do worse. Henry Fonda is pretty good, although he doesn't have, much of a character that has to do with the plot i don't know if you know what i mean by that like you can a a character can have a character but their character traits don't influence the plot like they're they're different levels of how well you've integrated a character into the plot and ideally you want to write a character that the plot couldn't happen if they were a different person We'll be talking about that. Don't worry. Fun. <laughs> I, might, I might even know what you're preemptively reaching into the future with that <laughs> criticism and know what you're going to say. Anyway, uh, Henry Fonda just seems like to, to be playing like the straight laced guy who wants a, to find a good wife. There I don't know. And things happen. Be playing. Things happen that they go, like, Okay. Where was this set up in his character? Anyway, that was my biggest issue character-wise. I'm rambling. So the next movie I watched was Before Sunrise. I'm on this uh, the train, or Before Sunset, ignore me. Um, I'm on this train of rewatching the Before trilogy and giving it a its proper reappraisal in my, uh, in my mind. As the first time I watched it, I was not in the, the correct mood, and subsequent viewings have proven very beneficial on the mm. whole um i don't want to break chandler's heart with any of this but it's it's a good <laughs> no. movie let's start out by that yes. like it's the it's true we, we're, we're on the operating assumption the before for, trilogy for is great the record before we've discussed it before but before sunset is my favorite in the trilogy 
And I think I've I've claimed before that Before Sunrise is my favorite. And our friend Brandon yeah. Sanju has claimed Before Midnight is his, right? Yes, it is his favorite. Okay. Because it's the Return of the Jedi of the trilogy. <laughs> perhaps Just perhaps we'll have a, a discussion. Another thing we could potentially ask him while we're on our drive to Los Angeles <laughs> this uh, this weekend. Tomorrow, actually. Jesus. Yeah. Uh I find them my main issue with before sunset sunrise. God damn it. I can always do that before sunrise. The my main love of the film is that it is essentially continuous that they meet and it's just the mise en scene of the whole thing is real time. And Everything that you want, all those questions that you have in the interim between the first and the, the second movie, I think are properly addressed. They don't really leave any threads hanging, but they don't definitively, I think, answer all of those questions. I think that's the big appeal for it to me. I suppose. And, they, and, and I suppose also the issue is. It. Didn't just it doesn't fully justify itself in my mind as necessary. Unfortunately, mm. other than you want to spend more time with these characters or the actors, because obviously, yeah, Ethan Hawk, Julie Depley, amazing. There's. Not a single fault with the performances whatsoever. Um, like it, I don't think it, 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 it expands upon the meaning of the first film. And in fact, if you just watched the first one and didn't watch the rest of the trilogy, a okay, you're fine. I, I like, I, I'm hard disagree. <laughs> okay. It's nice to see the story, but like, yes, the, the magic of the first one for me is the, the budding relationship they're still new and there's some tension and there's kind of like a a clear goal from the outset of like where the movie is progressing. Here it's it's definitely more just let's talk and see if we how things go from there. Um so it seems a little more aimless in that way, not as a criticism whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um because that can be a benefit in your mind uh, depending on how you how you look at it. But for me the issue, I suppose, was they. The characters seem less. I don't want to say likable, but some of the the dialogue came across to me as not as kind of fresh and unique and as um, romantic. That's not the right the right words, but as the first one and some of it felt like, OK, we we need them to have conflict in their lives after they've. Uh, been apart for all this time um oh you oh your life has been so terrible well look at my life i'm like okay it it just didn't feel fresh it didn't feel yeah. as inspired as yeah. the first one and, and that could just be that maybe the night i watched the before sunrise was i was just really into it and i was just looking but at you, it with fresh eyes it, okay then yeah, you've like, seen it twice though yeah or you, twice sure Three times as in uh, two times after the first one. I don't know. Right. But for some reason with yeah. any movie, there's always like you can it can hit you just right on one day. And then the next day, yeah. if you watch it, it's like just not up. the same thing. Right. Well, okay, here's my here's my. Follow up. Here's my argument is that I do agree. It's not as uh, I don't even know if I agree there. I think a huge part of this to me is that this movie is basically that first movie is just. It's essentially a romantic fantasy. They're young. 
they're dumb, they're naive, they believe in these big ideas. And then eight years later, they're still young. They're not, you know, middle aged or anything, but reality has set in a lot more. That's where I feel that these elements of, oh, my life is so bad, your life is so bad come in. But I feel like what this movie does really well is that it examines that sort of doughy eyed youthfulness. And through that, they it's basically a, a movie that asks the question, was this just naivety? Was this just us being budding romantics or was there actually something there? That's what they're asking themselves because they've gotten separate paths. They fall. They've fallen uh, in love with other people or they've had relationships past this one. They haven't worked out. Is it them or is it because they missed their chance eight years ago? It's a movie that to me has a lot to do with like regret, Um, but it's not like before midnight where they're so old that they don't. I'm not going to say that they're so old. They're only in their 40s, but it's not like before midnight where you can. There's this tangible feeling that it's too late they're still young so the whole will they won't they of this movie is what makes it for me because Hmm. the first one is very it's not a will they won't they it's will they the whole way through it's just nothing but love nothing but romance the second one has the will they won't they and it's also has that retrospective element that sort of breaks down the the mindless romanticism of the first one in a way that i think is really powerful um, and then it ends on an even more ambiguous note, literally ends on a will they won't they moment, which I think is amazing. But I think more than anything, this movie acts as a nice bridge between the two movies. It's kind of like this is a this is a very odd comparison, but I think it's apt. The Empire Strikes Back to me is similar because <laughs> the Empire Strikes Back, it's more of the same as well. Mm. And it ends in a way that feels like a transitionary story between two bigger stories but it's still got a lot of great stuff to it and it's that it's that that ambiguous ending that sort of makes it really powerful i don't know i do feel like it is the empire strikes back of this whole trilogy and i don't it doesn't necessarily have the the same identity as the first and the third one but i think the moment to moment stuff is where it really shines I love the beginning when she comes into the store while she's he's reading from his book. It is a very powerful moment. Um, there's like a good 30 to 40 minutes. It's, you know, it's all catching up. And by the time that you get to like the boat that um, you start to wonder, OK, is this literally just the first movie again? Because they're very similar. It's almost like they haven't missed a beat. But then you have this ticking clock element of his plane that keeps getting di- more and more dire. But then to me, where this movie just completely becomes its own thing is in the car. Where she has that like breakdown, basically. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the movie, I think, like from the car scene to the end of it, where they're just in her apartment, I think is just absolutely wonderful. But mm. yes, I agree with you in that it doesn't necessarily have its own unique identity like the first and the third ones. But I do think it's necessary for the overall arc of the the trilogy. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it could. Well, obviously, yes. I mean, the trilogy, it, it works. Uh, yeah. I'm saying more so from a perspective of which which films work for me better than the others. Okay, yeah. Um, and <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I didn't need that further retrospective reflection after the ending of the first one. 
Um, like that was a, a added bit of nuance or commentary that yeah. wasn't necessary. Like the the whole point of the, the, the end of the first film is like, will they, will, will they or won't they get together after a year? And how like part of me is like I dislike them answering that question <laughs> entirely. Like okay. I, I don't think that's the right move to do. I think you can have them get together years <laughs> later and and ignore the answer of that question. Um, but I think answering it kind of like at least like coming off of the high of watching Before Sunrise and be like, holy shit, this is a great movie. Um, and really feeling it this time that that just got me off maybe on the wrong foot uh, with the, the whole thing because I also felt like this time around uh, Jesse's especially in the beginning where when he's answering the questions about the book he is like oh he's just an author talking out of his ass about this <laughs> especially stuff especially when he talks about than- his new book where it's like yeah. takes place entirely of a pop song. It's so eye rolling, but I think it's eye rolling in a charming way. And I could I could see how you would feel that it, it wasn't charming this yeah. time around. And perhaps I just need to watch them not as a trilogy, but as separate installments, which I think I, they actually work better that way of like you watch one and it's like before sunrises, it's its own contained film. It is. It's easy. I think the, it'd be hard most to argue that it needs a follow up at all. Like it didn't ask for one. And I think Richard Linklater would agree with you. He just happened to later say, you know, this was fun. Let's do it again. And that's fine. So maybe why will uh, put some distance between me before sunrise and, and return to before sunset with, with a bit uh, some fresh eyes and maybe. Maybe the process of me sharing it with my dad or me sharing it with someone else who hasn't seen the trilogy before is important for me to uh, kind of latch on to that because there is something. Yeah, there is something better. Like, I, I think I, I pay attention more to a film if I'm sharing it with someone else. Um, or at Interesting. Least, OK. Yeah. Because I watched Good, all three of these by myself. In oh, a of room. course. But this, I'm talking um, about me, my personal. Yeah. Watching. Yeah. But I don't know, there's just so many amazing scenes in Before Sunset. And I do think the ending of Before Sunset is just one of my favorite endings to any movie. Wonderful ending. Mm. Also short. It's weird. It it's is. Like it's 80-something nice. minutes. Yeah. Nice. Tight film. I can't, I cannot levy the criticism that wasted my time, even though it wasn't totally necessary as a, as a <laughs> sequel. So. Ooh, I can't wait to discuss this with Sanji tomorrow. It's going to be fun. <laughs> maybe i should watch yeah, before midnight should i watch before midnight tonight just get the whole trilogy over and we can have a fun discussion in the yeah, car. You could, you could. i also said i'd watch uh possession for him and i i haven't yet so that was the other thing i was thinking about watching tonight that motherfucker better watch grand budapest hotel if he doesn't i'm gonna watch possession don't tell him and if he doesn't watch grand budapest i'll say i didn't watch it i'll log <laughs> it that'll be a punishment all right, so our first movie of the week is a movie that I have recommended. I feel it's been quite some time since I introduced the first film of the evening program, whatever you call this thing that we call a podcast. So uh, I will re- introduce A Touch of Zen. A Touch of Zen is a 
1971 Wuxia film, or a martial arts, Eastern martial arts film, if you don't know what the Wuxia genre is, uh, written and directed it's by... It's common knowledge. Less... Okay, good. <laughs> uh, directed by King Hu. Um, it is based on a classic Chinese story, and it is a, it's a set in the Ming Dynasty. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah. Based oh, okay. upon... But I think I'm sure King Hu took a lot of liberties. With that being said, King Hu was, as a director, is it was very particular about getting the time period and the historical historical accuracy of his Chinese periods correct. So, who knows? So what year does this take place? I'm very unfamiliar with Chinese history. Same. Mm-hmm. I'm a little Before- more familiar with Japanese history. The 14th century AD. The year 1300 to the year 1400. If you're not hip on the fact that if you're not, if you're not the centuries terms. are off. I hate that. It was done. That was very dumb. Anyway. So it is. Uh, da, da, da. Let me pull that back up. Uh, it's about a kind of timid small town scholar artist. Uh, named Goo. Uh, <laughs> forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that. I'm just gonna call him Goo because that's fun. I don't know. It is fun. How you would say that in Mandarin or I don't know either. Whatever. Anyway, so Goo is a uh, kind of a unmotivated man. He's he's quite smart and living in a small town, and he's happy where he's at. Although his mother's not happy where he's at. And uh, one day he is strange things start happening in the town. Uh, a Stranger appears asking for a portrait. There's a a woman moves in to the haunted fort next door. And from there, action and things and intrigue. A lot of things happen. With the Chinese court and eunuchs and monks and lots of characters that you would find familiar if you watched other King Who movies. Uh... Yeah, so that is a touch of Zen. Uh, it is. It's a long movie. Was it's three it hours is. almost exactly? Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good start for an introduction. I feel like there's plenty of interesting historical context I could get into real quick. But seeing as how I've seen this film before, and this is Chandler's mm-hmm. second uh, King Who movie, I believe I. This is. This is perfect. Like not not often do I get to introduce a director in the way I would recommend them be introduced to mm-hmm. people. And I, I think we talked about this during Dragon Inn. I said Dragon Inn is a perfect place to start with Ken Hu. And I don't think yeah. A Touch of Zen is necessarily the best place to start. I think it's good to go from Dragon Inn to A Touch of Zen. Mm-hmm. Uh, to kind of get into that style. Because he is not, as a Chinese director... And someone who's very familiar with like Chinese theater, Chinese art, and the Chinese methodology of storytelling, the way he constructs a touch of Zen is not exactly conventional per se in some respects. No. And I can levy some criticisms along those lines, but at the end of the day, I, I do like the film, and I'm curious as to what Chandler thought of it. I liked it. I liked it more than I liked Dragon Inn. Everything I saw was good. There was just too much of it. It's a very. I don't want to say convoluted because that's a negative term, because I felt like everything that happens 
had its place in the story, but it was very oddly structured, mainly uh, in terms of uh, perspective, because it starts as Goo's story, um, and then it switches perspective to not even the woman that they're looking at or the Eastern Depot is trying to get, but the people that she fraternizes with as they leave and find monks. It's odd because the movie, I feel like, doesn't really have a consistent narrative hmm. to me. But that's not necessarily bad because I felt like every narrative avenue it explored was open and closed. I don't think there's any hanging threads. It didn't forget about things. It just introduced so many things that it's hard to really tell what this movie was about. Um, the biggest thing to me is that it begins as a story about Goo. Um, and his whole thing is that he's happy where he is. He's a portrait maker. He likes that life. It's simple. It works for him. His mother does not. His mother wants him to marry and become a state official. Um, his contentness with his life led me to believe that this is going to be a, a, a story about um, sort of defying parental ancestral expectations and living your own life but that's not a very eastern thing no um so then the movie then becomes about him wanting an heir getting an heir and then defending the heir. it's just very odd to me the motivation behind yeah. goo i think is consistent though not consistently presented or emphasized. Um, hmm. Like, I think the, 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 he's not looking for an heir. Like, I, I'm not sure that's particularly his, his goal even. Uh, yeah. Like stayed in the beginning. I think that's more of his mother's goal uh, for him to get married and to kind of move up in the ranks. Um, but he's very much someone who is content and is happy where he's at. Uh, and the film is almost like he's he's moving away from his Zen. If that <laughs> if that makes sense, the, his titular Zen, his titular Zen. Yeah, um, I, I could get into that, the analysis of that, but that would be spoilers. But the thing with a touch of Zen is that it's a film that I the first time I watched, I think it's probably the first King Who movie I watched. And I wasn't necessarily totally on board with it. And it is a movie like, as I was just describing with the Before trilogy, that I need to be in the right mood for. Mm -hmm. um, because it is a very atmospheric film filled with gorgeous very. nature shots. And King Who is Lots more than willing, more than willing than I think any Western director to just stay too long in one place or we, we would describe it as staying too long lingering and i think that's the point i think that's what he's going for and so this can sometimes be infuriating to watch it can be like oh this is yet another shot of goo walking through the canyons of the rocks and panning through gorgeous scenery like yes from a perspective of Western storytelling where like you want your shots to progress the narrative and, and have a purpose, this is, some of it can feel draggy. Some of it can feel unfocused. But there's other times when I'm really 
into the narrative or I'm feeling the kind of placid nature of what's going on and the not interested in the, the lack of concern about the plot, uh, when that's when I can like let the feeling of the film take over. Cause I think the thing the film does best mm-hmm. is create this wonderful moody atmosphere and introduce interesting complex scenarios where it's not about necessarily about what's happening, but it's about the intrigue and the kind of historicalness of the whole situation. And, um, later on it's about creating these these moments in nature of zen and in fighting of making a point because i think the film doesn't really come to a point until the very end and even then the point is obscured um yeah so i can see like also the, the mixed reaction and it's it's kind of meandering nature which i i think it's it is perhaps more streamlined than you might give it credit for except for one particular instance where i can point out later on in the hmm. film that i think the the narrative logic kind of breaks down in a way that didn't need to happen. Well, uh, when I say that the story is convoluted, I don't necessarily mean that it has a lot of unnecessary twists and turns. I mean it more so in a way that the way that the information is presented is not very economic. So there's some scenes that just they don't they they add to the story, but they they add they take up whole scenes for things that could be done in like two seconds. Um, there's a lot of like a lot of scenes about the Eastern Depot's corruption spreading towards the rest of the government around uh, this area and a lot of meetings between people talking about getting these other people. And it's just all these scenes where we don't have our main characters. I just sometimes I was struggling to find out what was going on um, because it's a very simple thing where, OK, Eastern Depot wants this woman because she threatens to unearth or show people uh, their corruption or whatever. That's easy. That's easy to understand. But there's so many scenes in which they explore that idea from unnecessary perspectives that it makes the story needlessly difficult to follow at points. But I do think that the story as a whole has a solid beginning, middle and end. And I feel like the characters grow and change. Um it's just a matter of there being too much. But again, all even the things that I feel are superfluous to the story, I don't mind watching because, like you said, it's very well presented. It's got a, an excellent atmosphere, especially towards the end, because I felt like the last 20, 30 minutes of this movie were masterfully done. Yeah, there's like this is one of those films that it's its reputation precedes it for those who know. Um and if you've seen a movie called Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, a little film by Ang Lee, and then you watch A Touch of Zen, you will find some very compelling similarities between those two. <laughs> and uh, Ang Lee, even on the, the Criterion, proudly expresses his, his admiration for A Touch of Zen. And a lot of it is, uh, from my understanding, that the the artistry of of the Hong Kong and the Taiwan film industries, uh, respectively, uh, were mo- mostly just kind of um, shooting action films, just kind of pulpy entertainment. And King Hu was one of one of the first Chinese directors in film to really bring a sense of artistry and style to what they were doing. And so it is a very important film and you can feel it's it's ripples through a great many other 
Eastern filmmakers from Taiwan, from, I, I think you could make a case for Edward Yang being inspired by him, even though they're very different directors in terms of genre well, they have they have similar structures where there's not yeah. necessarily a main character mm. um and the movie's more about exploring every which every relationship between all these characters mm-hmm. um but that, that that does bring me into another point about this movie um with that i don't necessarily think is a bad thing about this movie but i just i look at all the wuxia movies that i've seen mm-hmm. the martial arts movies that i've seen and i've seen a lot of what people construe as the best ones mm-hmm. um Dragon Inn, Touch of Zen, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Hero is another one. And I think it's just a genre that I just, I don't care that much for. Hmm. I don't know, it's weird as a, as, as a whole. Because every time I watch one of these, I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. The, you know, the, the flying around, the crazy acrobatics and stunt work, and the spirituality between its characters but then i'm just like it never blows me away and i just i think it's a genre that i just have never been a huge fan of the i think the exception for me is crouching tiger hidden dragon that's a film that connects with me emotionally but i think i would generally agree with you that a lot of these eastern martial arts films do tend to remain distant and i'm i'm hesitant to bring up a topic that i've been kind of exploring on my own for quite some time and writing about um with the intention of maybe making something about it but there's there's an interesting difference in storytelling and i'm not even going to call it an eastern versus western thing i think it is a american an english speaking style of storytelling that is built in since a lot of you know the uk and all that a lot of their storytelling is is interwoven with the the history of hollywood um but i think you could say that well i would make a very bold claim that that hollywood cinema in general is perhaps all of it capitalist propaganda no no um no modifiers on that i'm not saying good or bad but I think there's something, and I can defend this point, but it would take a very long time. There's something inherent about the way that Hollywood tells stories, all Hollywood, very few exceptions, um, that is highlighting the individual uh, perspective. The, I agree there. The we, Yes. Um, and then yeah. kind of capitalism would be too reductive, I think, kind of an American ethos of storytelling of rugged individualism. I think that's the other word I'm looking for. Um, And Eastern, but this, I think you can find this in French films. I think you can find it in any, any culture that isn't kind of dominated by this desires of the individual over all else. um, And other capitalistic uh, uh, functions. Um, You can find, that they're the the way a lot of their stories are structured are are not based around the the heroics of an individual the ability of an individual to fix anything look at it i'm just <laughs> you know um i know i agree right. i agree and it's particularly pronounced i think in eastern films and i i think it's very interesting to look at even something like kurosawa who seems like a very western filmmaker but even something like yojimbo is i don't think quite conforming to our our 
idea of what a hero is and saving the day. Like, I don't think saves the day. Well, anyway. Yujimbo but, is interesting because it has an individual. It's like the perspective the of the film. Yeah. But the forces in the movie are much more. Um, they're much more broad. They're institutions. Yes. I feel like that's the same is, way with a lot of Kurosawa's movies. A lot of Japanese Even like films. Even like I think if you were to, to point to like the a lot of overarching. The overarching like pressure on Japanese film is institution, which is very much the, the case in that culture of, of being yeah. your relationship to others is important. And, you know, that's that's an Eastern thing. And I don't want to be too reductive here. Um, but I think it comes down even further when you get to Chinese film and not even just communism, China, uh, but also Hong Kong and Taiwanese cinema in that it is a culture that, uh, particularly with the, the philosophies of Buddhism and the Tao, uh, Taoism, uh, where it's emphasizing the familial unit, the structures of, of government and paying respect to your your ancestors and yada 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 um mm-hmm. i don't know enough about this stuff to not sound kind of again very reductive sorry for keep using that word um but i think that influences the the storytelling style of uh, a touch of zen in that goo is the vehicle for the audience important word their vehicle because uh in another film legend of the mountain it's even more pronounced <laughs> where the main character doesn't have a character whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, he's just, you know, the person the audience follows and everything else around him is important. Um, but I think when you look at the the structure of a touch of Zen as a kind of. From the perspective that the individual is not the hero in any in, in this type of storytelling, that it becomes more kind of approachable from the perspective of the group. Because it is about a group effort and, you know, ultimately yeah. the it comes down to the individual upon like a spiritual journey. Gu goes on a, a spiritual moral journey and he has questions about the ethics of what he's done at one point. And that's an internal thing. But a lot of the, the out. The, the external conflict of the film is is taken on by many people, which is why it's it shifts perspectives at the end and, and multiple times that it's not. The philosophy of storytelling is not about one person or or one mm. central it's narrative thrust. Mm-hmm. It's not about that one hero's journey, right? Even though there are heroes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're also not saving the day. You, you realize, like, at the end of the day, like, they, they killed some henchmen, but the, the overarching <laughs> structures of, of Chinese government were never, were never at play. There was never any mm-hmm. question of dealing with those. It's just about... I'm rambling. I do enjoy this movie's exploration of one of China's greatest vices. Ghosts. Ghosts. It. (laughs) (laughs) That was my favorite part of the whole movie. Well, one of them. Just them making the soldiers think it was haunted. It's fun. This is this is a great like King who, especially near the end of his uh, later parts of his career, was very into kind of ghosts and mythology and uh spiritual haunting and stuff like that and like this this film kind of starts as like a uh it's a period piece and it kind of goes into like a um a mystery detective kind of thing where goo's trying to figure out what's going on and then eventually be goes leans more into like the action genre 
near the middle and then it leans into the ghosts and it is very spooky ghosts this is i think the most well-constructed sequence in terms of just all-around atmosphere and pacing um is the extended like 16 minute uh fort fight where they (laughs) they lure the villains and their their soldiers into the fort and convince them that it's haunted as a tactical ploy for them to i think there's like four of them four of them versus 200 and it is a very well fun put together sequence and the the joy of that is just that how it unfolds in atmospheric and aesthetic uh, proportions Mm. yeah the atmosphere in general like every scene that has that fort lovely um just lovely set design just the way that nature is sort of claiming back the the house you got vines pouring through the windows and moss growing in all the doors and lots of fog kind of like antonioni where there's a lot of heavy symbolism in this although it's not dense like antonioni is where Mm -hmm. it's keep it keeps recontextualizing itself this is just like it's it's heavy use of nature is important to what i think the story might be getting at and and how it frames some shots it's very interesting that the the film starts off with a uh, close-ups on spiders and insects trapped in, oh, yeah. in the web and and that can that has metaphorical uh, resonance with uh what goes on in the film yeah um also uh at least compared to dragon in a lot more light on martial arts yeah i think like the martial arts aren't as flashy in this um especially towards the end where it's you know they're all fighting that monk and the monk's fighting style is basically that he doesn't want to fight <laughs> <laughs> just every single move is a deflection it's a parry it's some sort of uh, uh subduing move um and yeah aside from a few different sequences the scene where she basically runs up bamboo and torpedoes at them <laughs> i mean that part's fun <laughs> well yeah and a lot of it's based on uh, yeah. like chinese theater peking theater yeah the music cues this was the the case in dragon in and it's doubly the case for uh, touches in lots of trampolines in this movie lots of trampolines the other my favorite thing in the world and it's terrible it's a terrible effect on all accounts <laughs> but i love it are the arrows whenever they file fire bow and arrows they're just like someone is like cuts to shot and it's very clearly someone off screen just throwing arrows <laughs> There's no accuracy whatsoever. It's it's charming, especially so many weird scenes where they um, they'll shoot like three arrows at a time. Mm -hmm. But it's funny because then when they leave the bow, they're not like they're just like. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. It's like it's like in Stalker when they're being shot at and you can clearly tell that someone's just throwing rocks in the water next to them. That's machine gun fire. I mean, I can see why people would feel that's, you know, quote unquote, immersion breaking. But I thought it was a lot of fun. You know, at some point you have to. You should give it a pass. You don't have to, I should say. Um, And in particular, like King Hu was working on a limited budget. There was there's not much infrastructure in Taiwan at this time to, to make films. And a lot of it was very like compressed he, i think mm-hmm. somewhere in one of the the bonus features like he might have had like two dozen extras at most and there's a lot of soldiers Jeez, and a lot of like wow yeah. scope to the film but he he makes do with when you really look at it he makes do with good use of locations 
and good use of just reusing what he has. Especially the end, because like I said, the ending, I think is amazing. That fight with the Buddhist monks in the forest, but also at the end, the final like scene where the uh, Eastern Depot official uh, kills the Buddhist, but then the Buddhist gives him a demon punch or something. (laughs) It's very interesting effect where basically he sees negative. (laughs) This is negative vision, I guess. I don't know. That whole last like five minutes is very trippy. Yeah, it. it... King who likes to do that. I I don't know if you noticed the similarity, not the similarities, but like a stylistic thing where like at the end of Dragon Inn, the the one like eunuch, there were like shots of everyone like running around him and he's going and there's the music's doing weird things and there's double exposure Mm -hmm. shots. And I think he just likes that at the end of like going like. um, Let's go full crazy. It's like stylistically the film has a, a an arc like he waits until the end to really use the kind of punchy um effects and and new techniques um which is is good it's the ending is it it, it defies easy explanation um yeah. in terms of like what exactly is happening feel like i'm just gonna say spoiler alert even though we're already in the spoiler territory um you i mean it's pretty clear that the main monk dies Mm. and ascends to some level of buddhahood or whatever you would call it in in buddhism buddha heaven Uh, buddha heaven and he is he's reached enlightenment and but from there like the the negative image what does that represent does that represent like the guy has entered into to hell or he's entered into a he he's seeing pure zen and can't handle it because he's so evil or what's going on and there's birds i love the bird sound effect where they're just kind of like oh, yeah. they're cawing but it's like resonant and it's just he, i do one um eastern storytelling method that i do very much enjoy Happened in Dragon Inn, happens with a lot of anime as well. I do love um, a movie that just ends at the climax. That's fun. Well, climax happens, done. Hmm. That's the thing. It's, like it's, Dragon Inn is almost comical the way that one ends. This one has yes. a lot more brevity, a lot more room. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not me being facetious. I do enjoy that movies that just end when they and should. Whiplash is another famous example. <laughs> Movie's done. <laughs> time to go leave <laughs> well it's interesting that I, I i like the way this movie is paced in terms of like its action sequences because it really takes its time to to build up to that and isn't in any hurry to get anywhere and i do think that it is the information is is doled out in inter- in an interesting way because i think on repeat viewings i just am interested in following like the intrigue of like knowing where the plot goes how is it presented? Because it is presented in a unique way. And I, I think it's potentially potentially confusing, but I, ultimately I don't I don't think yeah. that is the case. And with the the end, it's almost like stripped back. I'm I'm not sure how to really describe this describe the structure, but like the the fight at the fort is the main battle sequence of the film. And it is almost a very long denouement at the end, tying up loose ends. And you get to a fight between the the third level Eastern Depot agent guy and 
yet another villain is introduced. Um, it's weird. Which is a weird storytelling decision, but I appreciate it for like it's it's a film that feels entirely different, like a different ethos of storytelling of King Hu as someone who is very integrated in in Chinese art and theater and all that poured all that knowledge into a touch of Zen. And even though some of it doesn't work for me because I'm so used to other kinds of storytelling and there's some places that I think he could have been more efficient. I respect the film so much and I like watching mm-hmm. it because it's, it's like experiencing that storytelling from a different perspective. But it's fun. It's nice. You said this is your favorite King who mm. might be I really uh, legend of the mountain has been growing on me. Um, no. Raining in the Mountains, pretty good, which is on the Criterion channel at the moment. Hmm. Did you see, by the way, that Criterion has a Letterboxd account now? I do. I just followed it, actually. Well, it's interesting because one thing that they do is um, they make lists on what's about to leave the channel. Oh, good. Oh, oh, they're yeah. making those lists. Now I don't have to do it yeah. myself. I don't have to go yeah. through and... And just for the record, three movies that are leaving the end of the Criterion channel in June, or the end of June, that I want to see. Uh, Babylon, Patton, and uh, Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. I've seen two of those. Yeah. The... Well, there's plenty of things to be uh, to talk about with them. Um, touches that. But the last thing I want to leave us with is I, I think if you were to sometimes I like to like pinpoint the uh, antithesis of a director's style of mm-hmm. of saying like. Here's one moment, not a scene, just a moment of filmmaking that exemplifies a director's style and is like their contribution to. Art in general. Um, the an interesting example is uh, Kislowski's Three Colors, uh, Three Colors trilogy. In blue, not even my favorite of the trilogy. Uh, there's a moment in that film where uh, Juliette Binoche has a a uh, sugar cube, and she holds it in her coffee and and lets the coffee like seep up into the sugar cube. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this. And there's like a flute playing in the I background, do. but I like do. it's it is a moment that every time I watch it, it is just like pure cinema. And like, there's, there's only he could have done that. And there's whole stories behind just that moment and how it was directed, but not the point. The point is, is if I were to like pinpoint the, the greatest moment, the greatest thing that uh, King who has ever done is the arrival of the Buddhist monks at the end in the third act. As, oh yeah. Like, Honestly, like I, I think it's one of the singularly greatest pieces of film editing and like one of the greatest moments of mm. you have our two, the, the, the lady and the other general who are fighting the eunuch or the Eastern Depot guy and they're losing and suddenly the Buddhists arrive and you see them. Uh, King who likes to shoot into the sun a lot, which is very unique. Not a lot of directors do that. Um, but you see the Buddhists and there's a, it's so, it's just magic. Like it's pure movie magic of the Buddhists jump off this rock and kind of float over <laughs> and it, it cuts to the, the river and the, the trees swaying and it uses like a, a Buddhist bell 
And it's just every time I watch it, I'm just like, this is this is what movies are made for. And I almost watched the movie just for that moment and just for those those that ending scene, because everything with the Buddhists are my obviously the Buddhists scenes. are the best characters. They are, even though they, they, even though they have no character. No, they don't. But they, they have do. personality in no personality, but plenty of character. Their 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 unflinchingness is their character. Hmm. They don't have an arc because they don't need an arc. They figured themselves out. Yeah. They know what they're about. The only thing left is to die, to bleed golden blood, and and advance to nirvana or whatever. Ascend, it is. ascend. Yeah, yeah. It's a fun movie. I key. I like to watch it. Uh, it doesn't feel like three hours. Every once in a while. No, no. It's I fun. think Goo is a fun character. He's, there's not much going on there, but he's fun. No, I like his mother, especially there's when he goes g- crazy. <laughs> he's laughing. That's a great scene. It's just. It is a great scene. Atmosphere. Uh, this is a movie that I feel like. I would like to return to whenever if I ever like start to film my own projects again is just like go go big or go home. That's what I think King Who does <laughs> is he just leans into creating atmosphere of of landscapes, setting oh, hey. yada yada yada. Hello, Chandler's sister. Good movie. Touch is in. I recommend it. Yeah, it's good. I liked it more than Dragon Inn. It's very good. There you go. Uh, I recommended it specifically because the the title is similar to our second film, which is the BFI pick of the week. Chandler, take it away. Well, this uh, this week's BFI pick is Touch of Evil, directed by Orson Welles. Um, It is a movie about a bomb that goes off at the Mexican Texas border, a border town, somewhere, some border towns in uh, the South of America. Uh, it's basically a movie about Charlton Heston, a Mexican actor who's playing a Mexican man, as we all know, um, who is trying to find out just who set off this bomb. All the while Orson Welles is uh, fatly doing the same thing. <laughs> it's it's a it's basically a movie. It's a it's it's a very noir noir. It's a movie about corruption, shady deals. Uh, uh, sketchy towns. Um, it is another in a long list of Orson Welles projects that was uh, cut without his okay. Um, and weirdly enough, I went into this one. I was looking around. I don't own the movie. I've seen it a few years ago. I watched the director's cut when I first saw it because I think I watched it from a less than legal stream. And I was looking around and I couldn't find anywhere to rent it. That was the director's cut. I only was able to watch the theatrical cut. So, you know, with with something like Magnificent Ambersons in mind, I'm like, oh, is this going to be like butchered? Is this going to be like the shadow of a great movie? But, you know, watching the director's cut. Or the theatrical cut. It's not that bad. I don't think I can't think of anything that felt like very theatrical or I, I couldn't see any part of the movie that were on like. That is the studio. It all still felt like Wells to me. Hmm. I don't know which version you watched. So I. I assumed too much as the saying goes, and I thought, well, hey, they did a they did a recut that clearly must be. They must be respecting Wells, like I thought we were all on board with that at this point, like, why would you show any other version uh, at this point? So I just assumed when I rented it on uh youtube i think 
But that was the cut I was watching. I was just watching the, the cut. It's just the cut. It's mm-hmm. not the case. It's not the case at all. Um, no. Just I don't fine. even know where you can find the restored cut. Uh, I actually think, like, I don't... I don't know if I've seen the uh, director's cut. Because uh, I think this is the cut I watched both times. This is the second time I've seen the film. And it was a... Um, I think I gave it, I remember giving it four and a half stars because like, yeah, well, it's Wells. I don't want to be too harsh on him, but I wasn't too into a touch of uh, touch of evil. God damn it. Don't put the A in there. Um, <laughs> the touch of the first time. This time or the second time. Wow. It's just a good movie. It's a really it's a good, good movie. movie. It, it is a, a really very good movie. movie. And it is. I, I did extensive research today on like what what are the differences because i was curious after i realized my mistake and they are very interesting i think they are the correct decisions i think wells is making um better decisions than the studio but unlike magnificent ambersons the studio isn't being moronic in what it's doing yeah it is playing it safe and in that it kind of the film loses some of its edge that is purposefully there by by wells um and the most interesting example of that for me was in the very beginning uh you know we are following uh charlton heston's character whatever he is called (laughs) yes so we're following vargas and his wife played by janet lee susan vargas and after the uh, explosion in the uh, opening scene, uh, they, they separate famous for a little bit. Scene. The famous opening shot scene. Shot, yes. yes. Uh, I don't think we can add anything to that conversation. Great shot. I just want to say this. Yeah. I like it's a It's a great shot. The other long take is the one I'm more interested in. I think we'll get to that. But I think yeah. there's a couple long takes. But yes, there is one specific long take that's like five minutes. And it's a con. Anyway. Um, yeah. The. In the movie version, it kind of it focuses on Vargas and then it cuts over to Janet Lee and then it cuts over at the end of a scene. But the thing that I found interesting about the the Wells's notes, and I'm assuming it's in the uh, uh, director's cut edition as well, is that those things are intercut. They're like you're going to get a, okay. a little bit of uh, Vargas and then you're going to cut to janet lee as she's being led into yeah. the town by the mexicans and then you cut back and i find that interesting in that it places the emphasis on both of them yeah well that's both the thing and her, i don't remember because it feels more like his film and that we're we're yeah. sometimes cutting away from the the interesting stuff to her whereas the emphasis was originally on both of them and quite rightly so but mm-hmm. it doesn't ruin anything the way that the studio has done it just makes it a little less uh engagingly edited and and feeling fresh again i said i I saw this a few years ago i remember when i saw it the first time i remember giving it five stars um and i'm starting to think if i watched the extended version or the extended version the wells version the restored version i'd go back to that rating because the one thing again i can't remember the specifics of that first viewing but one thing that I did uh, feel like at the end of this movie when I watched it the second time was I remember Janet Lee feeling less removed from the movie. 
I remember the first time specifically feeling like it was just as much Janet Lee's story as it was Charlton Heston. In this cut, she kind of feels like more of a, a damsel in distress type character. She is still kind of in the restored cut as well, but I'd be curious to watch this again. But this is one of those things where I would happily watch again because it's just it's entertaining. <laughs> it's very entertaining. I think Wells has this weird reputation for being the the like uh, a stuffy homework type director, but I do genuinely think his movies are very entertaining. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he gets that rep- reputation solely from Citizen Kane, which yeah, uh, ironically F enough, fake is fun too. Yeah, ironically enough, like people who who say like, oh, Citizen Kane is like a textbook film. It's not interesting. Hundred percent agree with them. People who say, "Oh, Citizen Kane, great film. It's very interesting and entertaining, and so right." I also hundred percent agree with them too. <laughs> like it's all of the above. Anything you can say about it, anything goes. Um, but you look at this, and like this almost seems very far removed from the the textbook nature of Citizen Kane, in that he's not like it doesn't feel like I need to be analyzing the shots, like all the shots in the depth or have something yeah. interesting and important to say, but rather. It's just kind of like immersive filmmaking, creating the the vibe and the world of this border town and the the noise like this. This is a film that Orson Welles really heavily leans into the sound design of this film. And that's that's kind of what I noticed this time around of like so many things are going on and the way that he balances all the different music and vocals and and along with shots and it's just great just well put together and like he's juggling so many balls at once it's he's a magician he is and i also want to say i know he has everyone knows him orson welles the genius director i think he's a damn good actor too because he's he's my favorite part of this movie my only criticism with this movie is that i think um charlton heston is boring and i've always thought he was kind of a boring actor uh i like ben hur but it's not because of charlton heston and it's not because he's, you know, I do I, I do find it funny that he plays a Mexican guy and their idea of uh, Charlton Heston is a Mexican. is just dye his hair black and give him a dumb little mustache. <laughs> he still looks and sounds exactly like Charlton Heston, which, which is think, good. I'm glad they didn't go the the breakfast at Tiffany's oh God. Uh, racist uh, minority route. But Thank it is God. funny when he speaks Spanish. It's not and it's, it's just it's not great. Yeah. Like, obviously, from from our perspective today, you would have liked some representation of Mexican yes, actors in this. Yes. But from then, it's. Problematic, but excusable because it's not. Yeah, but it's not even that part compared to that. Yeah, it's not that part that really bothers me. It's just that his character as a whole is kind of boring. Um, but one thing I wanted to point out is that this is a, a movie that the Coen brothers really, really like. Hmm. And I went in that with that sense. knowing that. And a lot of that makes sense because they, too, have a similar obsession with Wells and preferring the wide angle look, um, the shadows, the harsh shadows. Um, but this one in particular feels Coen Brothers esque because every single character in this who has like a line of dialogue is an interesting and memorable character with their own like easily definable quirks. Yes. So many great little characters in this movie. 
I love Marlene Dietrich in this movie, and those scenes are by far my favorite in the whole movie. I just wish there was a little more, just a, just a wee bit more. It, I do, and, there, I, and I, I don't know off the top of my head. I think there is more in the restored version between those two. Good. I, I suppose my my biggest criticism of the film is that I'm not particularly, and this kind of goes hand in hand with Charlton Heston not being the most engaging of characters. I'm, and I, I think. Honestly, I think it's it's actually the reverse. I think his character is not particularly engaging, but his performance is, uh, at mm, least for okay. me. I I think he's like he's putting it like he's giving it a at all. He's just kind of he's just such an actor's actor to me. Sure, know? but like I I don't see anything like particularly going on with that character. Yeah. Um, and I would have liked some emotional investment on my part of like a reason. To care, like I care about uh, Janet Lee, her character, um, a bit more than I do even him. Um, that she's like going through like trials and she's being harassed by all these uh, people, and it's it's she's in a much more kind of empathetic and relatable uh, position than he is, I think, than anyone is really. But I think the real shortcoming of the film <laughs> is that at the end there's a line and. I'm just going to operate under, under the assumption that this is a Orson Welles line from Ma- Marlena Dietrich, where she's like uh, lamenting Orson yeah. Welles' death. And I'm like, wow. I would have really liked it if we saw a little bit more humanization of Hank Quinlan as a character. Yeah. Because he's kind of, he See, comes across as just this terrible, terrible policeman. <laughs> Like no redeeming qualities whatsoever. And I I think there there's little yeah, hints of I it. Agree. Like he's picking up drinking again. Like he's a very he's a pitiable character in every in almost every sense. And you really get that towards the end. But I would have liked to just and perhaps that that goes along with Marlena Dietrich's character of just a little bit of like who and why he, he has become the way he has become, or even just showing some kindness or something that says he's not this absolutely terrible man who's just framing everyone around him for for crimes. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I honestly think a huge part of why I like those scenes with Orson Welles and Marlene Dietrich is because I feel like without those scenes, he's completely horrible. Right. The, those it is scenes to- they humanize totally. him. Yeah. Yeah. Those scenes humanize him in a way that for me, I think, in the end, makes him a... a I don't want to say sympathetic character because he's a, he's a fucking bastard, but... I do feel sad when he dies because yes, you, know, you I get would enough of more of yeah. that feeling. You know, you, you get he he has his own demons. You get a sense that his wife was strangled. He's an ex-alcoholic, uh, a current chocoholic. Um, <laughs> and those scenes in the is it a brothel? Is that what it is? That's what it felt so. like to me. Uh, whatever it is there that. Oh, I love that music, by the way, that plays on mm, the piano, the, the self-playing little, uh, piano. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, it's just it I has such a nice mentally visualized the the music itself uh, and here. I well, I added it to my cinema playlist today because I think it's great. That's a, that's um, a good addition. But yeah, those scenes are just so melancholic and you can see just the way Orson Welles looks at her. There's like little hints, little glimmers of the man he used to be. The man will never see. But what I do find it very interesting about this movie is the ending where. He was right. <laughs> Technically, mm-hmm. he was correct. His hunch was correct, but it doesn't matter 
because he went about it in the complete wrong way. I have this list that I um, I've been adding to over the past year mm-hmm. on my letterboxd. Um, and the list is aptly called Not All Cops Are Bastards. <laughs> Just movies with cops that are j- that exemplify what the police should do. Mm-hmm. I think Charlton Heston is that guy. You know, guilty until proven innocent, maybe even to a fault. He's a little too naive because um, obviously the man he is so quick to defend did turn out to be guilty in the end. Uh, and of course, the other not. Can you can you guess maybe what another not all cops or bastards movie might be? I'm terrible at, at on the cusp. Okay, well, the only ones I have so far are Touch of Evil, just added Fargo. Mm-hmm. Ah, yes, yes. yes. Uh, Chunking Express and uh, Twin Peaks. Well, okay. Well, Chunking Express, it's it's a different culture, so I feel like it's not quite true the same. But it, or true. at the very least, I don't know what Hong Kong police are like. Well. Well, what we've seen recently has not been too good. Well, but yes. <laughs> but yeah, this is. Um, also, this movie feels pulpy in a lot of ways. <laughs> like there's two big jumps for me in this movie. There's like a literal jump scare in this movie. And I forgot about it this time around. Um, and that's with uncle, the uncle character who Orson Welles strangles. Mm hmm. And then Janet Lee wakes up and you see just his his dead face. Oh, oh, that's yes. terrifying. And then <laughs> something else, a little bit of like not it's not bad direction, but it's also like, you know, one of those moments where you're watching a movie and like, why don't you just do X? Yeah, you, you would have solved something. And like she's on top. She obviously she wakes up. There's a dead body and she runs out onto the 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 fire escape and starts like yelling, help, help at like the barest like she's not shrieking she's not yelling in any particularly yeah. loud volume she's like my husband like could you raise your voice a little more <laughs> i know like there's a lot going on he might not be able to hear you but did try no no you're not wrong you're not wrong it's I not also really, really it's, enjoy... it's a nit- that's a nitpick of yeah yeah orson wells I also really enjoy the scene where um one of the gangsters tries to throw acid at Vargas <laughs> because it's just that shot of the acid hitting the poster We're like whoa it looks like I mean it has to be real acid just the way it burns but, yeah yeah give me two seconds and we'll finish up the conversation yeah it, it to, to jump right back in feels very pulpy in the sense that like the the actual film is it's kind of hard to see it's not hard to see but it's just covered in shadow and there's like barely any white in the whole thing um and it's like cinematography wise excellent excellent stuff but just particularly like the lighting and all that of that scene when he's in the elevator mm, i don't mm -hmm. know if he maybe it didn't jump out to you but like that scene when, you know, they basically investigated the full breadth of Orson Welles's shittiness and he's just going down the elevator, basically trying to manipulate the other two cops. The way that the light, I mean, this is a staple of all noirs, but like the way his fedora just 
completely obscures the top of his face. I just thought it was absolutely great. Just yeah, the shadows the, are so sharp. The other thing of like pulpy, almost disgusting film is at the end that this time around, the thing that really stuck out to me in terms of great filmmaking was the climactic sequence of uh, Charlton Heston has wired uh, Var- not Vargas's um, whoever his name is. I don't remember his name. Quinlan, Hank Quinlan has wired uh, his his partner uh, with a wire. Um, no, Vargas wired and he's his following partner. Yes, Vargas wired Quinlan's partner. Yes. And he's following yes, them yes. with the receiver. And he's like crawling over these oil derricks. And it's it's very like tactile and disgusting. And you can't see anything. You're like, where are they going next? What does he have to crawl over next? And and it like it, it ends up with Charles Neston is going through the river and is like holding the receiver above him and it's echoing. Another great use of sound. Very inventive. Like I'm it doesn't like it's not immediately like dense again to repeat myself from earlier. It's not like dense narrative information like it is in Citizen Kane, but it's all there to like create an atmosphere in a There's way a that I detail. think proves yeah. it as a another work of of Orson Welles where he's just pushing what is capable artistically that I think almost all noirs that I can think of are not using the full breadth of cinema and of the tools and the filmmaking uh, that they can. Um, so I, I think, I don't know if we were to answer the question of uh, does it deserve to be on the BFI list? See, this is where I'm conflicted mm. because it's a very, very good movie. And I think the only thing for me that's keeping it is that I do think there are better Wells movies that deserve and are already on the list. And although also as a noir, it doesn't necessarily do anything revolutionary. It's just a very, very good noir. I love Wells' style. But we will be discussing more influential Wells movies. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, even if we're not talking about Citizen Kane, I think I would put F or fake on here over Touch of Evil. I'm going to ultimately say no. And this is a hard no to say because I do really, really like it. I just there are better wells. There are more influential wells. There are more unique wells. It's just a matter of that, really. But I do wholeheartedly recommend this movie. I think it's one of his best movies and just one of the best noirs, period. Also, I feel yeah. like uh, if you were to put this on the list, and I think we were both in agreement that the third man should be on the list, they seem very similar. And I think if it's it's more of like one or the other, I'll put the third man. Touch of Evil is a, a close second. Although I will say, I do like Quinlan more than I like Harry Lyme. Mm, I disagree. I think also, uh, there's more to deal with, more to interact with with Quinlan. Harry yeah. Lyme's very much... He, he's more of an enigma in that film quite purposefully okay I, but i think he's sticks out more in my mind but that's also did you catch joseph cotton's role in this movie no what was it <laughs> he was he was the mortician it was odd he was very heavily made up to the no. point you couldn't even tell it was joseph cotton he's only in one scene and he's it, like yeah, the makeup remember, makes him the look scene. 30 years older yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. it's odd <laughs> 
you know, if I was being charitable, I would say yes. Yes, it does deserve to be on the BFI list. And um, mostly because like I'm, I'm thinking about it, at least on a filmmaking level, which I think is important. I can't think of like much better representations of the genre. And, and I mean, obviously, you need multiple representations of a genre. You can't. There's yeah. not a hundred uh, genres to fill out a BFI list, so you can't have like one of every genre. Um, but so you know, multiple film noirs is perfectly acceptable, and like it, it's Wells. And for what I was talking about, like how he's using lighting and sound and directing and all that together is just it's it's great. I mean, it is the cliche is saying, oh, go watch uh, Citizen Kane if uh, for film school. For film school, go watch a touch of uh, touch of evil. For film school, like <laughs> I, I think this is perhaps a much more approachable film and a very good film to learn from in terms of just making a mood of just kind of doing, putting it all out there, especially like during uh, the, the cinematic scene where, language. Uh, Hank Quinlan murders the uh, the uncle, the the Mexican drug uncle. Mm -hmm. That's just wow. What fun filmmaking, like when he's the camera's like following them around and the lighting and everything. Like, Same I just think the, of these moments. I'm thinking of the filmmaking, yeah. not so much the storytelling, which I think leaves something to be desired in terms of investment. But yeah, that's that's why I'm putting it maybe cautiously on here. It's not. I, I think I, I would do agree with you. Ultimately, I'm not like, yeah. I just want to be sort of devil's advocate and say it, it, it yeah. is really good and is one of the best films ever made. I agree. And I would I would I'm going to say no for now, but I'm going to make the reservation that I will see the extended version again and then I will have my definitive answer because okay. I, I feel like a lot of our criticisms could be addressed too. in that cut. But could. yes, point is, maybe it is an absolutely wonderful movie. Yes, definitely deserving of the acclaim. And if you uh, if you want a good uh, if you're in film school and you want the uh, perfect example of stop, stop fucking cutting. Look at the we, we brought it up earlier, but we didn't talk about it. The five minute shot. It's a conversation in, in the, uh, the hotel room and it is just constantly reframing the action. The hotel room ways. or the apartment? The hotel room. Which or long take you whatever it is about? is it an apartment whatever, where they find hector yeah where they find the the, the guy and the the, the girl yeah. yeah yeah it seemed it That's seemed or well a terror a room a bedroom place thing doesn't matter it's it's a five minute take you can find the whole thing on youtube but it's just like oh all around great uh directing great use of like the camera and the director using everything to focus your attention especially on the very important dynamite box. and the box. That's mm -hmm. the blocking is magnificent. Such a good scene. Such just, a good yeah. I know. That's, I know. The, I know the opening scene is the flashier one. It's the more memorable one. And that is a great scene. It's a great way to open it. Yeah. But just the nuances of that apartment scene in particular, just a lot more but, interesting to me. And I think it's more of a, a technical achievement, quite frankly, because like with the, the opening scene, you have, you have a town. And you direct them. And there's a lot of moving parts, obviously, but you have a lot of room. Yeah. A lot of room to work with, a lot yeah. of room for error in that. I mean, you're in a cramped, cramped space and it's 
five, six, like eight actors all doing things, well, coming and going, blocking, yeah. staging. You have to get the camera position right. And it's all in this confined space. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, film. that first one, too, it's the first one is all movements, camera movements, actor movements, car movements. Um, obviously, that's very difficult. But in this one, so much of it is performance, because imagine going through like the first four minutes and then Wells doesn't nail that slap. Yeah. The whole take is ruined. And Wells is such a big part <laughs> of that scene that he just needs to command it in the right moments, in the right ways. And yeah, it's just masterful filmmaking. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe it does deserve Good it. Enough. I don't know. I'll give you an update <laughs> next week. I got to think about it more. Right. It's great. Well, it's uh, it's pretty great. Yeah. 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 Uh, Orson Welles. I, I didn't specifically say it, but I do agree with you. Orson Welles is a ton of fun. Great, great performance <laughs> in this. And yeah. What else? What else is there to say? Next week on the Split Take podcast, no idea what we're doing. We Goodfellas, I thought. Or do we not decide? Yes, yes, Goodfellas. We're doing Goodfellas next week. Um, That is, I'm not sure if it's next on the list, but it is at the very least something I think we are going to talk about together. And that'll give me some time to schedule some guests that will be coming soon to the podcast, including the return of the one, the only Daisuke Beppu, who we uh, go back in the, the yes, so excited, uh, currently talking Love about Daisuke. figuring out with Daisuke what we're going to be talking about. Might just be a fun conversation. Who knows? Uh, go see our review of A Brighter Summer Day if you'd like to hear our previous conversation with Daisuke on the podcast. Great YouTuber. Check out his YouTube. All wonderful, that. wonderful YouTube. Anyway. Goodfellas next week. We'll pair it with something, maybe a Scorsese film, but that's about it. So uh, thank you for listening. Uh, Like, comment, subscribe, you know, do do something. The huge. Tell us, let us, uh, let us know if you've seen a King Who movie and uh, what your favorite Orson Welles movie is. If you want. Or if not, um, we'll see you later. (laughs) 